Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, November 9th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Pfizer has good news about a potential COVID-19 vaccine. Here is what you need to know. Meet the man who went viral over the weekend for interrupting a French newscaster. And high fashion scratch and sniff t-shirts. Plus a brief history on the technology that enabled them. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. After a huge election weekend, the big news this morning is that a vaccine candidate from Pfizer and German firm BioNTech has been shown to be 90% effective at protecting people from the coronavirus. Quoting the Washington Post, in Pfizer's 44,000-person trial, there have so far been 94 cases of COVID-19, the illness caused by the coronavirus, in people who were not previously infected. Fewer than nine of those cases were among people who received two shots of the vaccine, a strong signal of efficacy, end quote. The vaccine is administered in two different shots three weeks apart, and Pfizer says no serious side effects have been observed, although, quoting the Washington Post again, there was pain at the injection site and fatigue, chills, and fever, which occurred more frequently in younger trial participants than in adults over age 65, end quote. The FDA only requires vaccines to be 50% effective, so 90% is pretty amazing news, and it's being received as such with the Dow spiking over 5% in response to the news today. But how exactly is that efficacy calculated? Biostatician Dr. Natalie E. Dean shared a primer in a series of tweets back in September that was re-upped today, and I'm going to quote just about the whole thing here because I think it's really helpful to understanding. So here goes. Vaccine efficacy, or VE, measures the relative reduction in infection-slash-disease for the vaccinated arm versus the unvaccinated arm. A perfect vaccine would eliminate risk entirely, so VE equals 1, or 100%. And this can be calculated from the risk ratio, incidence rate ratio, or hazard ratio. Vaccine efficacy of 50% roughly means you have a 50% reduced risk of becoming sick compared to an otherwise similar unvaccinated person. Or you have a 50% chance of becoming sick given that you were exposed to enough infectious virus to make an unvaccinated person sick. Though we talk about vaccine efficacy as a single number, there are actually several different types of vaccine efficacy, such as efficacy to prevent infection or sterilizing immunity, efficacy to prevent disease, and efficacy to prevent severe disease. Most phase 3 trials are measuring efficacy to prevent disease as the primary analysis, with efficacy against infection and against severe disease as secondary analyses. Preventing infection entirely is the hardest to achieve, and of course a vaccine that prevents infection will also prevent disease and severe disease, but we can have vaccines where people are still infected but their disease severity is lessened. 
So far, I have talked about how well a vaccine directly protects the vaccinated individual. Another important type of vaccine effect is the ability of a vaccine to reduce infectiousness to others. This is known as indirect protection and is related to herd immunity. A vaccine that protects infection entirely provides indirect protection to others. If I can't get infected, I can't infect you. But it's possible to have a vaccine that prevents disease, but individuals can still be infectious. Finally, vaccine efficacy versus effectiveness. We like to reserve efficacy for estimates from randomized trials where everyone receives the vaccine as intended. Proper cold chain, no missed doses. We distinguish this idealized measure from real-world effectiveness, end quote. The Pfizer vaccine is one of 11 around the world in late-stage trials, with four U.S.-based frontrunners having received funding from Operation Warp Speed, and this particular Pfizer trial did not receive that funding. Regardless, it bodes well that we could even have more than one successful vaccine next year. Quoting BuzzFeed News, the drug company said they are continuing to collect safety data required by the FDA, which says that half of the patients in the trial should be monitored for side effects for at least two months following their second shot, before asking the agency for emergency authorization to begin distributing its vaccine. The company expects to meet that milestone by the third week of November. Once that data is collected, Pfizer projected that it's on track to produce 50 million vaccine doses in 2020 and up to 1.3 billion doses in 2021 to be distributed worldwide, end quote. Now, while this is all reassuring, it's all still very early and it's probably best to temper our expectations. As journalist James Ball said on Twitter this morning, quote, you're getting too excited about the vaccine news. Want to avoid the crashing disappointment in a few weeks' time when reality hits? Avoid the sugar rush of junk news now. It's good news, but it should not be moving Zoom's stock price, let alone having you plan your flights for your winter break. The vaccine is not yet ready for market, and distribution will be slow. The fact they seem to be working is a great start, though. It's just we shouldn't confuse the first few steps on the path with having magically reached the summit, and judging by my feed, we really, really have. Chill. There's a long way yet before normality. End quote. And, you know, he's right that we shouldn't change anything about our behavior yet or get our hopes up too much. Distribution is going to be complicated, and unless you are older, high risk, or an essential worker, you are probably not going to be one of the first people getting this vaccine. But also, even if it takes a while or if this one doesn't pan out, this is still an incredible breakthrough scientifically. Vaccines usually take much, much longer to be developed. Katherine Jansen, head of vaccine research and development at Pfizer, was not really exaggerating when she called it, quote, a historical moment. And combined with the announcement this morning of President-elect Joe Biden's COVID-19 task force, those of us who have been following this closely since the beginning or have personally been affected by the tragedy of the pandemic can't help but feel pretty hopeful today, even if cautiously so. I think Jason put it really well on Kotke.org this morning, quote, over the past week, as Americans voted and then held their breath for the results of the election, over 750,000 Americans tested positive for COVID-19. Based on the current case fatality rate of 2.4%, over 18,000 of those people will die in the days and weeks ahead. Many more will suffer long-term health effects because of the disease and struggle emotionally, financially, and spiritually in the months ahead. 
I really, really hope there's enough of a spirit of togetherness and cooperation left in America for a science-based plan like this to work in controlling a disease that's killed almost 230,000 people. We, all Americans, need this so, so much. End quote. In lighter news, if you were on social media this past weekend or watching election coverage via French cable news, you may have come across a man that one tweet called a masked, sunglassed hero. While anchor Maxime Swidick was reporting on the celebrations that had erupted in and around Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, D.C., a shirtless man wearing a black face mask and dark sunglasses interrupted the spot to say the following... Now, just imagine him shimmying a bit as he says all of that and the anchor turning away from the camera to try to control his laughter. I must have watched this clip about a dozen times over the weekend. It brought me so much joy. And now, thanks to the intrepid reporting of Forbes correspondent Chris O'Brien, the shirtless man has been identified as Mecca Onyanetu, who works to support the U.S. Secretary of State's office and, despite his exuberant and slightly glib outburst, genuinely loves French culture. He says he studied French at the University of Michigan, is a huge fan of their food, their clothing, and their basic jam, and was planning to return there again this year before the pandemic hit. So what led a true lover of French culture with knowledge of the language to an eruption of stereotypes? Anyanetu says he was pumped up on Biden's win after a tough year personally, and some sparkling wine— not champagne, as Anyanetu correctly notes that champagne only refers to sparkling wine from the Champagne region of France, may have been involved. And while he does still know some French, enough to know that his assertion of omelette du fromage was grammatically incorrect, it should be omelette au fromage, he says he was just so hyped by the day that he wasn't totally thinking and that the classic joke from Dexter's laboratory just popped in his head. Same with his fake French ha-ha-ha, which he says he hopes didn't offend anyone. And as for his lack of shirts, well, after he popped the cork on his emergency bottles of sparkling wine, he was covered in the wet, sticky substance and ditched his shirt. An additional photo provided to Forbes shows Anyanetu clinging shirtless to the top of a traffic light surrounded by onlookers. In other words, Mecca Anyanetu may have had the best day of anyone this weekend. Good for him. This was a quick link on cocky.org this morning that I just absolutely had to share. It's a perplexed to the point of almost scathing review of a line of $590 scratch-and-sniff t-shirts from legendary fashion company L'Envent. Despite that seemingly glib focus, the article goes all over the place, explaining the history of artificial scents and touching on the loss of the sense of smell, physically and situationally, in our digital COVID era. I'm going to quote kind of heavily from it simply because the piece has some incredible writing, but first, these t-shirts. Hailing from the 130-year-old French high-fashion company L'Envent comes a line of three white scratch-and-sniff t-shirts featuring an illustration of the fruit that they each smell like, which retail at $590 apiece. 
They're also inexplicably gendered. Quoting the New York Times, the shirts come in four sizes, three varieties, and two genders. Cherry, for men, blackberry, for women, and strawberry, for both. End quote. Why is cherry for men and blackberry for women? And why is strawberry gender neutral? Did I miss when we assigned fruits as masculine or feminine? I have so many questions. I mean, I even double-checked, and the French translations of the fruits are all feminine, so who knows the reasoning here. The New York Times echoed many of my questions, quoting again, Why these scents? Why now? What is the cash value of a shirt that smells significantly more like cherry-flavored cough suppressant than other shirts? For how many days is a $590 t-shirt good before it turns and is worth merely $295, the shirt's eventual discounted sale price? Is it acceptable that some people enjoy the option to buy a scratch-and-sniff t-shirt that, with shipping, costs more than the supplemental $600 allotted weekly to 30 million unemployed Americans to keep them fed and housed after the initial eruption of the coronavirus pandemic? And what do blackberries smell like, and why is the shipping not free? End quote. And listen, I get it. High fashion is weird. More expensive t-shirts have certainly been made, and these ones do have one kind of cool advantage right now. Apparently, you can only smell the shirts when you get fairly close to the person wearing one, so maybe these will work as a sort of deterrent in our era of social distancing. You could pair the shirt with a face mask that says, if you can smell cherry cough syrup, you're too close. But while the shirts themselves are a bit funny, why I really wanted to share this is because hidden in this comically appalled article is a brief history of scratch-and-sniff technology. It dates back to the 1960s and a man named Gail Matson, a chemist who went to work for 3M, or as it was known then, the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company. Quoting again from the Times, One of Mr. Madsen's first tasks after joining the company was to refine the practice of producing ink copies of documents without the use of messy black carbon paper. While tweaking a manufacturing technique known as microencapsulation in 1966, he invented what we now know as scratch-and-sniff. Its basic concept is this. A bunch of itty-bitty plastic-coated balls filled with scented substance can be made to rupture with light physical contact, Mr. Matson suggested fingernail pressure, releasing their scent into the air. Mr. Matson's patents describe how he created capsules filled with one part perfume oil and two parts diethyl phthalate and coated them onto a sheet of paper. The paper remained odorless until the capsules were scratched open. Since the 1960s, forms of microencapsulation have been used to preserve attractive colored stripes in toothpaste and to create the mysterious liquid crystal substance inside mood rings. Today, a common application is masking the bitter taste of pharmaceutical drug ingredients. The same technology is imbued, as we know, in scratch-and-sniff stickers, stamps, wallpaper, album covers, and t-shirts. End quote. But where did the artificial fruity flavors come from? Apparently, those were first born out of the Industrial Revolution, byproducts of coal or fuel oil processing and leftovers from the distillation of pure alcohol. Basically, burning all of those fossil fuels led to the shedding of a bunch of carbon-rich molecules that chemists were able to manipulate by changing their structure via heating or adding sulfuric acid and forming new compounds, thereby altering their sensory qualities. Quoting again, 
Scent is a tidy noun to describe a tremendous riot of molecules volatile enough to fly up into our nasal cavities where sensory receptors describe them to our brains. The majority of scents we encounter in everyday life are made up of large, complex combinations of chemical compounds, often several hundred apiece. To replicate a scent exactly down to the molecular level therefore requires an astronomic level of precision and effort. Fortunately, for those who would seek to replicate scents, a close approximation is generally good enough to satisfy." End quote. John Wright, a flavor chemist and former vice president for International Flavors and Fragrance, says all you have to do is identify a few key elements people use to recognize a scent and focus on those, not necessarily strive for complete accuracy, which would be a comparatively monumental task. Especially when fake flavors first hit the market at a time when mass-market confectionaries were exploding, the novelty was enough that people didn't care so much about the accuracy of the scent or taste, and quickly people associated the artificial flavors enough with the real ones that accuracy didn't matter. You know, we all know what fake grape tastes like. If we were given a candy without seeing it, we could identify it as grape, even though it doesn't really taste like actual grapes. And flavor historian Dr. Nadia Bernstein adds an absolutely wild footnote here, quote, Artificial banana-flavored things in the U.S. were widely available about 10 years before actual bananas were, so it's really likely that people in this country ate banana-flavored candy before they actually had a banana, end quote. The whole history of bananas in the United States is fascinating, and maybe I'll get into it another time, but suffice to say for now, this adds up, because bananas weren't really popularly available in the U.S. until about the turn of the 20th century. Uncovering the exact chemical composition to accurately recreate the smell of a fruit nowadays is more doable, but probably not really what the consumer would actually want. I mean, after all, some fruits, like the blackberries on those $590 t-shirts, don't really smell like much. We now expect to smell these stronger artificial scents. Unwinding the psychology of sense memory and associations, especially with regards to artificial scents, can be as dizzying as trying to understand why someone would pay so much for a t-shirt you probably won't be able to get much wear out of anyways. But tying up that connection between the two was not a historical, scientific, and philosophical journey I expected to be going on today. So thank you, I guess, to Lavan and their $590 Scratch and Sniff t-shirts. That is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go try to channel Mecha Anyanetu's chaotic good energy as I go forth in my day. I wish you the best as well for the rest of your day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 